The following sermon was delivered on December 20th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled A Few Good Men on 1 Timothy 3, 1-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, it's a law of science that water seeks its own level. Now, we see that when you, particularly in the smaller towns, you'll have in mountainous areas, you'll have a big water tank on top of a hill, or in towns and flat areas, you'll have a water tank way up on the top of a, a metal structure. And the reason for that is that creates water pressure for the little town or the village because water seeks its own level. Now, that which is true physically is also very true spiritually. Spiritually, a church will not rise above the level of its elders. As water seeks its own level, the church spirituality is going to reach the level of its leaders. And that's why what Paul says to us tonight, which I've entitled, A Few Good Men, is very important for us to understand. It's important because a number of you men here tonight are in, are considering the ministry and training for the ministry. But as a congregation, you will come to a point sometime in our development where men will be put before you. Uh, to be selected for the eldership. And you're going to have to have discernment of, uh, of how you vote for such men as that. And so that's what we're looking tonight as we come here to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We, in the second section of 1 Timothy chapter 1, was kind of a theological doctrinal background. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the structure of the church. So Paul's dealt with how we pray, our attitude toward the lost, the role of men in the church leading worship, um, the role of women in the church, how they are to learn in silence and humility, but their domestic uh, qualities contribute to, uh, in a wonderful way to the life of the church as well. And Paul now in chapter 3 returns to this matter of men. It's not any man that can lead worship in the church. We saw that a few weeks ago. It must be men who are qualified, men who are appointed so what Paul is doing now in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is giving us some of the qualifications for these men <clears throat> whom God would have to lead in his church. What I want to show you is that uh, because it is a noble office, the men who exercise that office must have uh, personal, domestic, and ecclesiastical qualifications. Because the office of elder is a noble office, the men who serve that office must have personal, domestic, and ecclesiastical qualifications. <clears throat> so we're going to consider the dignity of the office, the personal qualifications for the office, the domestic qualifications for the office, and the ecclesiastical qualifications for the office. Well, our first point, the dignity of the office is given to us by the Spirit in verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of bishop, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now, this is the second of Paul's five trustworthy statements. We saw the first one in chapter 1, verse 15. We noted then that these are axioms or truth. They're, they're not out of Scripture, but they are summaries of important biblical truths. 
Paul uses five of these in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And one of the foundation stones that we use in developing a theology of why we have confessions and creeds in the church, these trustworthy statements. So the second one now has to do with the office of bishop in the church. Unfortunately, all of our modern translations, except the New King James, translate this word overseer, and that's because they're afraid of the word bishop. Because in our day, the term bishop does have a wrong meaning. It was a name given to this office uh, pretty early on in the uh, uh, early Middle Ages as a technical office, not the office described for us in Scripture. But it's a name that we don't want to lose. We must not uh, give it up because of its significant spiritual importance. It comes from a Hebrew word that means to visit and oversee. God uses it of himself when he visits the land, when he oversees it, when he appointed men to be overseers in uh, the Old Covenant congregation, they were given this Hebrew word for this office. So Paul then takes this uh, word, the Greek translation of that word, episcopus, which you can hear episcopacy or episcopal. It didn't have that connotation, though. It merely had the connotation of an overseer. And that's why the word is translated that way. But I want to keep this word bishop, and I'll show you why more fully in just a couple of minutes. Now, the first use of the word in the verse has to do with the office. And so Paul says it's a trustworthy uh, statement if a man aspires to the office of bishop. And then the second use of the terms, a different form of the word in verse 2, the bishop then must be above reproach, and that is in the exercise of his office. Now, why is the word so important to keep? Because it's merely one of the ways the New Testament uh, defines for us the work of the elder in the church. Now, how do I say that? We'll look at a couple of examples. Acts chapter 20, Luke tells us that uh, Paul has gone back through his places and he comes to uh, Miletus. And there we read in verse 17 of Acts 20, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. But when he addresses the elders in verse 28, he tells them, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he, he summons the elders, but he tells them that they have this office and this function of bishop. And then in First Titus, or in Titus chapter 1, Paul gives a parallel list of qualifications. We read in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set an order, that re which remains, and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. He then gives the qualifications. Verse 7, For the bishop must be above reproach as God's steward. So you see the words are used interchangeably. They're not synonyms, but they both apply to this same office which we think of today as the office of elder that would include both the teaching elder, the minister of the Word of God, and the ruling elder who with the teaching elder rules in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the terms are important. The word bishop reminds us then of this function of, of spiritual oversight, of uh, shepherding the flock. That's what he says isn't it, in 2028, to do the work of bishops, shepherd the flock. 
So the bishop is the shepherd of the sheep who works under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the great bishop of his church. And this entails the, the work of the office in careful spiritual oversight, care, visitation, uh, instruction, all that the flock of God needs. The word elder reflects more the qualifications, particularly as Paul lists them here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The word elder refers to a man who has spiritual maturity. That doesn't necessarily have to be an older man, but a man who has spiritual maturity, that of an elder who oversees the flock of God. Now, the office of elder is an ancient office, not just in the church, but really in ancient cultures as well. But I read Exodus 18, so you would see that this is a foundation for having uh, elders in the church. They're not called elders there, but they're doing the work of elders as they are assisting Moses in the spiritual oversight and instruction of the people of God. And notice as well that you've got gradations. And there's part of the foundation of why we have elders functioning in a local congregation and why they function in a broader area, presbyterial area, and even in a synod. So Paul says that uh, it's a trustworthy statement that the one who desires this office of bishop desires a fine work. This word desire means earnestly to long for. He says it is to be earnestly longed for because it is a fine, a dignified, a worthy work. It's a work appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, we go back to one of the great prophecies of Christ as ruler and king in the church in Micah chapter 5. We see there the promise as part of Christ's reign in the church is in fact the appointment of elders and rulers in the church. So in Micah 5, 2, is for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from eternity. Of course, this is a prophecy of the Savior to come. Therefore, he will give them up. God will give up his people until the time when she was in labor as born a child. The remainders of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise, this is our Savior, and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, when he tramples our citadels, then he, Christ, will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. So as the church faces her dangers and her attacks from the evil one, and from those who hate God and hate his gospel. Uh, the prophecy here is that Christ, the great shepherd, the great king, the ruler, is going to raise up these shepherds and rulers in his church. It's a fine office. It's the office appointed by Christ. And I want you to understand that we're not Presbyterians by tradition, because it's the most convenient thing to do, or that's how we were raised. We're Presbyterians because of passages like 1 Timothy 3, or like Micah chapter 5, or Titus 1, or Acts 20. We believe that Christ, the King of the Church, has appointed this office. It's through this office that Christ cares for His people, personally ministering to them, upholding and strengthening them, exhorting them, and rebuking them when, when they need it. 
And so indeed, it is a fine office. And because it's a fine office, an office of dignity, he says that it is right to aspire, to long for, to grasp after that office. This is a concept that might be new for some of you. Now, we understand it a bit better when we think about a young man who has uh, in his heart a desire to serve God in ministry, and so he goes to the elders, he sets himself in this direction, he is desiring this fine work. And we commend that. Now, he's to be tested and uh, helped to develop in that process, but that's good. But how about a local church? Why aren't men coming up at local church saying, I would like to be a ruling elder? I would like to be a deacon. Because we have some strange notion well, that would be pride. But it's not pride, you see. It's a heart and desire, and it can come from pride, and we'll see that. But it's a heart and desire. Man wants to serve Christ. He thinks he might have gifts in one of these two offices. And so he comes to the elders, and he said, you know, I'm interested in this. Would you test me? Would you train me? And the elders then would work with such a man and, and uh, help him reach a conclusion, if indeed he's called to the office. But it also works the other way. And as elders, we should be looking at men and young men in the church and, and going to them. Some, we think you should think about the ministry. Others, we think you should consider prayerfully preparing yourself to be a ruling elder in the church or a deacon. And if that is of the Spirit, some way, somewhere along the way, the desire will begin to grow in the heart of the man. Whatever office it is, the teaching elder or the ruling elder, or for the deacon. That's also why I encourage all parents of boys, regardless of how young they are, to pray that God would call their sons into the ministry, to dedicate them to the ministry. Now, God might not do that, but we should offer our children, our sons, to God, and He might see fit to raise them up, because it's a good thing to seek the office of an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's this dignity, this worth, this usefulness. One writer says it's actually the church is the application of the gospel. That's why Calvin said, if you would have God as your father, you must have the church as your mother. A significant role the church plays. But because then of this dignity, this nobility of office, Paul goes on and gives us now these various qualifications. And I'm organizing them in the way I have. It's, it's a long list. And I took these three headings to help you kind of, of at least have categories that you can review and think about the qualifications. And so in the major section, Paul talks about these personal qualifications for the office. He introduces them in verse 2, a bishop then must be above reproach. Irreproachable. The idea of a man who is... Uh, Blameless in his conduct, not sinless, but sincere, uh, straightforward, who's not living in such a way as to bring shame on the name of Christ or on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, living with integrity. A part of living with integrity is, is living with humility. The man who's irreproachable is the man who, when he does sin against someone or before others in the congregation, he humbles himself and he asks forgiveness. That's how we maintain our blameless nature. That's how we continue to walk in a way that is beyond reproach. Now, in one, one sense, this irreproachableness applies to everything he says, but it particularly applies to five areas of personal qualifications. 
I've given them all M names. I had to stretch it a bit to help you remember them. hope I can remember them. So moral purity, moderation, maturity, mannerliness, and my last one is not a money grubber or a murmurer. Let's summarize the, the things that Paul lists here for us. So in the first place, he calls us to sexual purity, to moral purity. He says the elder must be a husband of one wife. Literally, it is a one-woman man. Now, Paul's writing this in a context that in Gentile culture, and I've read even in Jewish culture, there was the practice of polygamy. Now, when a polygamist was converted, he wasn't to put away his wives. The Old Testament speaks to that. He's to give them uh, uh, food, shelter, conjugal rights. He must take care of all of his wives. He can't put two or three of the four, whatever it is, away. He might be a godly man, but he's committed to his wives. And what Paul is saying is that such a man may not serve as an elder in the church. But just as all of God's moral precepts, you recognize then that out of that one concept flows many other concepts about sexual or moral purity. Obviously, he must be a man who is committed to monogamy. He must not be an adulterer. He must not be unbiblically divorced and having not dealt with that unbiblical divorce. He must not be a fornicator, which is sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. He must not be using uh, pornography are committed to a world of fantasy. And so the man that Paul describes for this office is to have moral purity. Now, I meant to say that one of the reasons it's important that elders have these qualifications, I mentioned there the, the water level, the stopcock in the reservoir. You can change the figure. They are the thermostat, not the thermometer. They're the ones who are going to set the temperature of the congregation. And so as I work through these personal qualifications, I want you to understand it's not just for young men here who might go into church office, or for you as you think about them, but it's also for each of us. Because the elder is to be able to say to the congregation, follow me as I follow Christ. That's why being irreproachable is so important. If I'm living in such a way that dishonors Christ, if I cannot say to you, follow me as I follow Christ, then I don't deserve to be in the office of elder. And so these qualifications are going to apply to all of us. I will come back to that. But that's moral purity. But the second one then uh, that Paul lists for us is uh, moderation. The elder must be temperate. Then he says, uh, that's in verse 2 and in verse 3, not addicted to wine must be a man who uh, exercises self-restraint, who's temperate and controlled in his habits. He mentions this one particular excess, which is addiction to wine, because that is, through all the history of mankind, been one of the common uh, sins and foibles of the human race. The elder must not be a drunk, nor addicted to any other physical substance, whether it be drugs or caffeine or tobacco, whatever it is. He must be a man who's not addicted to any other substance. But obviously, to be temperate or moderate has to do with all of our habits. To be moderate in everything. To be moderate, temperate in our eating habits. 
and our work habits, our recreation habits. Um, all that we do, there's to be a certain restraint, a certain moderation, uh, a temperateness in the things that we do. And then the third category that Paul discusses is what I'm calling mature. He's to be prudent and respectable, spiritually mature. The word prudent means to be sober and watchful. It's akin to the word we saw last week that women are to, to have prudence uh, in their conduct and uh, how they uh, exercise themselves in their home and in, in the church to, to live with wisdom. And a wisdom that's marked with respectability. This is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 9. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And this word, uh, proper clothing, has to do more than simply the dress, but it has to do with this being discreet, to be reverent in her behavior. And so men then who aspire to the office of elder must be those who have a certain respectability about them, a certain gravitas, a, a, a venerable, to, to be a, a venerable man, be one that's recognized uh, is a wise and, and godly and holy man. And so it must be one who, yes, has a good sense of humor, uh, for Christian faith is a joyous faith, and in, we should be people that laugh. But not just silly jokesters always going through life, making light of everything. No, there's to be a certain serious sobriety. And just as I mentioned last week, men, that uh, part of this discreet dress of a woman is not just the modesty, but a dress that is appropriate for the worship of God when she comes into the assembly. Now, this is very important, particularly for men who are going to serve as elders and ministers and deacons in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is a noble office. It is a noble exercise. And thus our very attire should say something about the seriousness and the sobriety of what we're doing that uh, in the pulpit, or taking up the offering, or going to church courts or a family visit, we need to dress as men who, in fact, represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be those who are spiritually mature. And then mannerly. Uh, we could put the word humility here, but I could have used the word modest, uh, but that has such broader context. But, but notice there in verse 3, to be gentle, and not to be pugnacious, but to be gentle and peaceable, not contentious, not a disputant. Pugnacious means quick to fight, to fight at the drop of a hat, quick to take offense. That's why the word humility or modesty is so important. It's to be fulfilling that which Paul says, to be forbearing with one another. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Respond to the affronts, real or imagined with a tenderness and a kindness, not quick to fight and not contentious. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 7, that I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Not a disputant, not an, an angry man. We will be involved in contention, and it should never be pleasant. We should approach contention in the way the Apostle Paul approached error. He describes it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, 
but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. We can beat them over the head all day long. We're going to wrangle them and shout at them and be angry with them. And that's not going to change their heart. No. We can be not quarrelsome. We leave the repentance to God. Remember how hard it was for you to come to some truths in the Bible? Would it be different from anyone else when they first get exposed to the lecture or to the Sabbath or to proper worship or whatever? There's a pushback. We have to be patient with that pushback. We have to be people of prayer that God himself will deal with them. But note in particular then this other word that Paul uses and that is gentle. Um, the best definition is in James when James talks to us about the heavenly wisdom in contrast to earthly wisdom in James chapter 3. The wisdom from above, verse 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. Here's our word gentle, but you see it's connected with being peaceable and reasonable. Easy to appeal to. This is what a gentleman used to be when the word meant something. A kind and, and reasonable and peaceful man. This is the kind of man that becomes this through spiritual maturity. And these are the traits that we're looking for in these men that will serve in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the fifth category, my fifth M, is... Uh, not one who is after money or who is murmuring. And that comes from two words. One is not in your, most of your Bibles, and that's covetousness. But it's in the text that I think is the best text of the New Testament called the majority text. So the majority text that we have here, free from the love of money, adds and covetousness. So not a money mongerer not one who's in it for what he can get out of it. Paul himself defined his own ministry amongst the Thessalonians as he was not seeking anything from them. He said to the Corinthians, I'm seeking you and not yours. Now the minister is to make his living from the gospel, and yet he must not ever uh, prostitute that gospel, as Paul um, warns about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, not to pander to those who are wealthier in the church or compromises because if the wealthy hear this or not to drop hints about well I've got this need or that need or um, to be content which is the second thing then not to be covetous not to long for what others have but more importantly in this case why I say not a murmurer is to be um, content with what we have in the circumstances of God in our lives they're often adverse. They're not the way we would design our lives all the time, but the way the sovereign God has designed our lives. And he wants us to learn to submit with joy to his plan. So not to be covetous, not to long for money, but also to be content with the purposes of God. And so these personal qualifications, as you think about them, moral purity, moderation, mannerliness, Maturity, uh, not money-grabbing, murmuring. 
actually reflect the Ten Commandments, if you just stop for a moment and think about it. Every one of these is found in the exposition of the law. And so, of course, moral purity is in the Seventh Commandment, and uh, moderation is in the Fifth Commandment, or, excuse me, the, the Sixth Commandment, um, and the Fifth Commandment. Uh, maturity, the whole covenant context is why I read those first verses of Deuteronomy chapter 5. We are to live according to the statutes and laws of God. Um, there were not to be angry, fighting men, the sixth commandment, and the eighth commandment, and then we are to be content and not covetous. Now, this is for every one of us here this afternoon, a standard by which we examine ourselves. If you look at your life through the law of God, as we read it earlier, or through the summary of the law and these qualifications, every one of us needs to come to the point, where do I measure up here? Do any of these things mark your life in such a way that you could easily be called a, a drunk, a fornicator, an adulterer, a blasphemer, a violent, angry person, a very bitter and discontent person? If they mark your life in such a way, then you're going to fall under the curse of Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Because what we have in Galatians chapter 5 is the very opposite of most of these things. As Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh in verse 19, they're evident, which are immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, sexual impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Where do you find yourself this evening? For if you find yourself categorized by what Paul says, the deeds of the flesh, that means more than likely, tonight as you sit here, you're not a Christian. It could be you're backslidden, but if your life is characterized by these things and you have no longing to put them away, you're happy with who you are, then that's very dangerous. Because it means you're under God's wrath and condemnation. But, don't you love the last words? Paul then says, but such were some of you. But you've been washed and you've been sanctified and you've been justified. There's no one beyond the reach of Christ and the gospel. Regardless of what miserable, wicked, corrupt people we are, no one is beyond the reach of Christ and the gospel. All it takes is to humble yourself before God, to own your sin with a true sense of hatred and grief for it, a longing to be saved from sin, not just hell, a longing to see Christ glorified and take hold of him. And then he will say of you, and such were some of you. Well, I think I'm going to stop here for the sake of the children. So we'll do the next two qualifications uh, next week. But let's just wrap this up by remembering now that this is what God calls us to be as Christians. It's what God calls you men who examine yourselves with respect to the office of the church to be. And those of us who are, are ordained, what we are to be. It's a great tool for 
self-examination. For all of us, as I've already shown you, but particularly for us who enter the ministry, us who are in the ministry. But it should never leave us to despair when we see our failures. We cry out to Christ for mercy and grace. And he has promised that he who had begun the good work in us will bring it to completion for his own glory and honor. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.